This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The way in which I've listened to senators talk about this, they are extremely, you know, they may not agree with your sense of the bill, but they are passionate in the, the arguments that, that, they may, that they've been making. And again, I, I keep think, I listen to them, and I, I know it's a different subject, but I remember that's the way they were with MAID. And they wanted all their amendments accepted, and you know there were negotiations that took place. It really did drag things out. What are you prepared to do to ensure that doesn't happen? And if you do that, is that really democratic? Well... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, democracy. (laughs) Bill C-11 has now been passed by the Senate with 26 amendments, including a notable one that seeks to find a compromise on the issue of regulating user content. The bill is in the hands of the government as Canadians await a decision on which amendments it will accept, which might be rejected, and then how the Senate responds. Contrary to Minister Pablo Rodriguez's reaction in the opening clip, this isn't a laughing matter, as the lives and livelihoods of thousands of Canadian digital creators hang in the balance. Senator Paula Simons, an independent senator from Alberta, nominated by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to the Senate in 2018, co-crafted the Compromise Amendment and has been one of the most engaged and informed senators throughout the Bill C-11 legislative process. She joins me on the podcast to discuss the hearings, her amendment, and what may lie ahead for both Bill C-11 and the upcoming Senate review of Bill C-18. Senator Simons, welcome back to the podcast. It is delightful to speak with you again, Professor Geist. Okay, so so nice to have you. I've been watching. I've been watching a lot of you at uh, committee over the last number of months. It's really nice to have you come on the pod. And as we record this, we are awaiting on the government's response to the Senate's amendments to Bill C eleven, in particular. I think uh, the amendment that you pulled together with Senator Maville Deshane. I think that provides a bit of a nice opportunity to reflect back on months of work that went into what I think is now being billed as the Senate's most extensive review of a piece of legislation ever. Obviously, you were on the inside. I watched almost every minute, and I think you were there for just about every minute of every hearing. I was there for pretty much every minute, yes. Yeah, rather amazing. Um, Why don't we start with some of your general thoughts on what I think is a pretty remarkable Senate process? You know, I'm sensitive to the fact that people say all the time, oh, well, the Senate's just a rubber stamp. The Senate just does what the government tells it to do. Uh, And I was also, of course, very frustrated by all of the misinformation, disinformation, you know, malicious uh, rumor mongering about C-11, the claims that it was a censorship bill, the claims that it was, you know, going to allow the government to to, uh, censor political speech, none of which was true. So I think our Senate committee, with some, you know, bumps along the road, did a thorough and good faith analysis of the bill. I don't know if it was the longest Senate process. I actually think C-69 could have could have rivaled it. But we heard from more than 135 witnesses. We uh, proposed in the end 26 amendments, all of which were accepted by the Senate. So when people say, oh, does the independent Senate really have independence? Aren't you all just a bunch of liberal puppets? I would hope that this would put that notion to bed that we did a nonpartisan critical analysis of the bill, that we had consensus on committee, which is a, a, a 
a very diverse committee of things that really mattered. And that, you know, I, I personally did not support every amendment that went forward. But I think some of the amendments that we made were absolutely critical. And I think that they are huge improvements to a problematic piece of legislation. Okay, fair enough. You know, you have any thoughts on, on why this committee decided to take on on a bill in this way and become so engaged? Was it the external noise around the bill, a sense that there was a need to hear from voices that hadn't been given a chance during the House review? Was it just pure politics on the part of some senators? I mean, why this bill uh, for so long? Why is this bill different from all other bills? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, there are a couple of answers to that. I mean, one is the, uh, the sardonic, cynical political answer which is that Pierre Polyev, the new leader of the Conservative Party, made this a, you know, something that he put in his shop window to say that he was unalterably opposed to C-11. And so I think the Conservative senators on the committee, uh, which is chaired by Leo Housakis, who was, of course, very close to Mr. Polyev, uh, you know, they had they had a political imperative, which was to demonstrate that they were being hard on this bill. That's not my imperative. I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. Uh, and I don't think that this bill did many of the things that uh, Mr. Polyev intimated that it did. I think for many of us on the committee and four of us on the committee uh, were former journalists or former people who were involved in the media sector. Uh, we knew that there were problems with the bill. And we wanted to really give the bill a thorough and appropriate critique. You know, arguably, lots of bills should get that kind of critique. But the but the other reason is that this was a this was a long and complicated bill, like C sixty nine. It was a piece of you know, it's a regulatory framework. So this is not a simple couple of clauses. This is a you know a holistic rewriting of the Broadcast Act. It deals with something very controversial: the the question of whether or not uh, online streaming services should be included in the ambit of the CRTC and of Canada's broadcasting legislation. It touches on issues, even though I've said it's not a censorship bill, it does touch on issues that butt up to the questions of freedom of speech, which is something where the Senate has a right and an obligation to get involved to make sure that we're protecting charter rights. But I think also it comes at a time of an extraordinary upheaval in the world of media. When the bill was first written, you know, when, when, the, when the liberal government was first casting this bill, there was really just Netflix. By the time we got the bill before us, there were all kinds of companies that didn't even exist when C-10, the first version of this bill, was first put before the House. So, you know, we have uh, not just Prime and Apple and Disney and Paramount and all these other streaming services that we never had before. We also have the rise of something like TikTok. We have the diminution of Twitter and Facebook. So, you know, we're in this time of extraordinary economic shakeout in the tech sector so that, you know, we were dealing with a, with a, with a bill that kept evolving in real time because the landscape keeps shifting. I think that's true without doubt. There's also, 
you know, I think a sense for many people that this bill obviously energized, exercised an awful lot of people. And I think I, I heard you and Senator Maville Deshane on our terrific podcast that Althea Raj put together. It was a really good conversation that you had. And yeah. you talked a bit about just the, the enorm, enormous amount of email that you were getting. I assume a lot of lobbying. What was it like to be on the receiving end of all of that? Well, there, there, are, two different, there are two different things going on. There was a tremendous amount of lobbying from all kinds of stakeholders all across the spectrum from, you know, from, you know, I'm, I, I ought to get a free pass to Disneyland based on how many times I met with Disney executives. Um, you know, I met with Disney, I met with Amazon, I met with, you know, the people who run Pornhub, I re- met with the people who do Twitch, I met with, you know, every kind of lobbyist, large and small, and lots of individual uh, digital creators that I met with, not just that we heard in, in committee testimony, but that I met with my, you know, if you go to the lobbyist registry, you can see a very long laundry list of lobbyists with whom I met, uh, conventional broadcasters, you know, Spotify, you, you name it, you name it. That's quite different from the, from the calculated disinformation campaign that was out there tied very much to the convoy movement that was designed to spread, frankly, lies about this bill. Just like complete hysterical, over-the-top conspiracy theories that this was, you know, being done. It was communist. It was Nazi. It was Klaus Schwab. It was the World Economic Forum. It was, you know, blah, 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 blah. Pick your conspiracy du jour. Um, you know, it's an anti-Semitic plot. It's the, 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 you know, the elders of Zion are behind it. I mean, and my inbox was full every day with dozens, if not hundreds of letters, many of them identical batch emails being sent by people, some of whom are probably bots, but some of whom are, are you know, authentic Canadians who honestly believe this stuff. And I have no time, no patience, and no sympathy with political actors who are trying to exploit the paranoia in our pandemic world for their own political ends to cold-bloodedly prey on the fears of people who've been through a terrible three years for the most base political ends to stir up this, this hysteria is unconscionable to me. And on top of that, it makes it very difficult to have a good faith discussion about what's actually wrong with the bill. So if, you know, if opposition parties would rather attack a straw man than do the hard work of looking at, at the actual clauses of the bill and what's wrong with them, you know, they're expending a tremendous amount of energy fighting a shadow war against a piece of legislation that doesn't actually exist. And so I'm really proud of the fact that our committee, including the conservative members of our committee, took this bill seriously and didn't spend a lot of time engaging in conspiratorial nonsense. Um, you know, and, and I said, you know, the conservative members of the on the committee too actually looked at what's wrong with the bill, what's right with the bill, and how can we make the bill better? And I don't feel that that kind of good faith debate was very easy. So points to us. Fair enough. There's, uh, you know, there's certainly a, a lot of conjecture has been a lot of conjecture about the bill, and and I agree with you that. Uh, certainly much of it's offside, but certainly one issue that that clearly did resonate with you that that sometimes bill supporters claim is the subject of misinformation, but you quite clearly concluded otherwise has to do with the regulation of, of user content. And so, yeah. you know, you had the minister appear before you saying there's nothing to see here. We've seen that repeatedly from the government. And there were certainly some senators on, on your committee that, you know, echoed that view. But at the end of the day, quite clear that your view, both at committee and at Senate, 
you came to the conclusion that there was there was something in need of addressing. You know, yeah. you know, you know what I mean, what, conv- what convinced you of that? Well, I mean, it's a twofold thing. So just for for those of you who, unlike Michael and I, have not spent the last three years of our life talking about Bill C eleven. Um, when Bill C-10 came to the House, there was a lot of concern that it included user-generated content. So when C-10 died on the order paper, the government came back with C-11, and it said, look, we've put in a clause, 4.1, that specifically and explicitly says that user-generated content is not included. You know, social media, not included. And that's great, until you get to section 4.2.2, which is what I like to call the exception to the exception. And it said... It says, despite what it says in section 4.1, social media can be included at the discretion of the CRTC if, and then it lists a bunch of criteria for what is if. The first criteria is based on how much revenue it generates directly or indirectly. Directly or indirectly. There's a lot of social media content that is not God strike me dead for saying cat videos. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is not just, you know, things posted by, you know, charming amateur content. There are people making a professional living using YouTube and TikTok primarily, but also to, uh, you know, a growing extent, Instagram and Twitter to generate real income. And they are users whether they're generating that income directly by subscription or indirectly through ads, through product placement, through corporate sponsorship. And they came to us, serious-minded people who are using new media as, as a new market to display their comedy, their film, their animation, their music. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we do not want to be included. And so initially... There was a lot of momentum, you know, YouTube was pushing to say, just say all social media is out all the time. And, you know, my initial thought was, well, let's just eliminate section 4.2.2. But that's probably too simple a solution because although YouTube has lots of user-generated content, it also functions as a distribution platform for corporate music. So Sony, Warner Brothers, the really big labels who use YouTube as an alternative or, you know, in addition to their work on Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon Prime Music. And what the government said to us is if we give YouTube a total exemption, it gives them a competitive advantage over Spotify and Tidal and Apple and Prime, and that's not fair. And not only that, it means that, you know, Canadian artists who want to be included, those professional recording artists, now you've you've left them out in the cold because YouTube is a major distribution platform for them. The other concern was what about uh, video product that's being repurposed on YouTube? So say, for example, um, you're a sports channel and you broadcast, but you might also do um, a live stream on YouTube or your um I think CBC has a new comedy show uh, created by the woman who did Little Little Mosque on the Prairie, where it's on Gem, but it's also being dropped on Instagram. So the question becomes, if you exempt all social media platforms, are you exempting big corporate commercial use? So Julie, Senatrice Meville de Chêne, and I, and our staffs, and I must say, you know, the staff never get enough credit, uh, but we put our heads together. We consulted 
with everyone. I mean, Senatrice Neville de Chen and her team consulted uh, in Quebec, particularly with, with you know Francophone artists, with an amendment that we think is a very elegant surgical carve out. So our amendment basically gets rid of the whole reference to revenues, and it just includes the big record, you know, the, the music that has a unique, you know, international identifier code that says this is a piece of commercial music, and it includes the rebroadcast of commercial, you know, broadcast materials. We think, of course, because it's our amendment and we love it with our whole hearts, that this is a great compromise. The challenge with a great compromise is that while we think that we have balanced competing interests, those competing interests on both sides uh, don't support the amendment. Okay, so, I mean, that's a great uh, look back at both the criticism uh, or with the source of the criticism, I suppose, with respect to the bill, as well as your uh, proposed solution. Uh, I find it interesting that you suggest people on both sides are, are critical of it. What, what, what have you heard of in terms of criticism of the amendment and uh, what are some of your responses? Well, now, okay. And I want to be fair because I realize I've sort of painted with a broad brush there. We've heard from a, we have heard from a lot of digital creators who really like the amendment, who have been very grateful and thankful and who wrote to us right at the time and said, oh, thank goodness, we really felt heard. You know, we didn't just come to the committee to spin our wheels. You actually listened and understood the problem and thank you. We've also heard from people um, some people in the industry, especially the, you know, SOCAN has come out very strongly against the amendment. Um, uh, there have been some other folks who've in the media sector who have been opposed to this, who say that, no, no, they, they don't want any, they don't want any compromise. And, you know, initially we also heard from some of the stakeholders who were not happy because they wanted the elimination of the section entirely. Uh, that noise seems to have died down now. Uh, and mostly when I'm when I'm hearing negative stuff on the other side, it's from people who frankly think C11 shouldn't have come into existence at all, who want us to kill the bill. And, you know, it's hard to explain to people that that's not how the Senate actually works. But the challenge for me is going to be if the government doesn't accept this amendment, because I think if the government doesn't accept this amendment, I think this bill is fatally flawed. Okay. I, thanks for that. I want to, I want to come back to sort of those next steps in just a bit, but let's just focus for just another moment on the criticism. I have actually a post up today as we record this on SOCAN's response, which I have to say, I found exceptionally weak. I mean, they, they seem to, their, their primary problem in their response seems to be, well, it's possible there might be some future unknown service that might not be caught by this. And, you know, that, that, that strikes me as just sort of this extreme approach saying that we can't take on any risk that there might be something that could be excluded down the road and the CRTC might not interpret it in the way that we think they yeah. should. And so you know, don't yeah. include it. And in a sense, require digital creators and others to bear all the risk of how the CRTC might interpret this legislation. Yeah. You know, and the other criticism that we've heard is that we didn't offer a definition in our amendment of sound recording. And people have said, well, what if what if they ref what if they define sound recording in in this weird way that would exclude music videos? To which we said, but they wouldn't, because that's not logical. That's not what anybody would think. Um, you know, so you know, and and further to that, I would say if the government really thinks that we need to it, that we need to define what a sound recording is, uh, 
the, the government can can tweak our amendment to do that. It's not a reason to reject the amendment out of hand if they just feel they need, you know, uh, for, for, for greater clarity, for greater certainty definition of what a sound recording is. Hmm. So, I think you know, I, I mean, I think the government is caught between a rock and a hard place because, you know, surely they have heard from all the digital creators that I have that this is an unworkable piece of legislation as it was written. You know, what Senatrice Neville Duchesne and I were trying to do is to sort of give people, you don't want you don't want to paint people into a corner. You want to give them enough room that they can gracefully say, oh, okay, all right, that's a that's a bridge that we can that we can cross. So, you know, I'm I'm really frustrated. And I'm frustrated too that after all of the months that we spent examining this bill, that people are popping up and saying, well, we we weren't heard. I mean, we heard lots of people. Sometimes we hear you and we don't agree with you. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and I, I I think anyone that paid attention would have to say that there was what I think appeared to be a truly good faith effort, quite frankly, in count in in contrast to what we saw at the House, uh, to hear from many, many stakeholders that had not had an opportunity. And uh, the idea that people weren't heard. Um, uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to see the justification for that claim. The notion that somehow, I, I mean, it, I just find it incredible, quite frankly, that someone might suggest, well, we're worried about how this term might be interpreted when groups that were concerned about this legislation literally for months and months and months have raised questions about how might this term or that term, social media and others, be interpreted. Those same parties were have providing the assurance, don't worry, the CRTC gets this right. But suddenly there's one term that might affect their interest and they're saying, well, we can't live with this. I mean, that's just, it's it's just, well, it's not playing fair at, at a minimum. And I, quite frankly, I don't see how it even puts the government in a hard position. Uh, you're either, you're either a desire, desiring an open, inclusive process in which you do hear from stakeholders and you try to address their concerns, or you simply say, this thing is baked in from the very beginning and and much of this is just theater. We're not really going to change anything at all. You know, there is also a cultural shift that has happened in federal politics that I'm not sure that everybody understands, including, frankly, members of the government. When Justin Trudeau set out to reform the Senate by appointing only independent senators, he gave to the Senate more power, more responsibility, more authority to make amendments. And in fairness, the government has accepted many, many, many more amendments from the Senate than, than you know, any government before it. Indeed, probably in aggregate all the governments before it. But sometimes they still seem shocked and surprised when we do precisely what it is our job to do. It is our job to independently study legislation, to analyze it through a nonpartisan independent critical lens and to suggest to them solutions to problems that they have created. Our amendment doesn't upend the bill. What our amendment does is make the bill do precisely what the government has told us that it wants it to do. Now, I'm not wedded to our language. We don't have an entire legal department on our staffs. We don't, you know, uh, has a wonderful lawyer in her office, but his expertise is not legislative drafting. I mean, if the government says, well, okay, we like, you know, we understand what you're trying to do, but you, you know, we're going to 
change the language here and change the language there. I, I'm not a purist. I mean, if they if 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 they feel they need to massage the language or tweak it a bit, that's one thing. But to reject it out of hand, and you know, the messaging coming from the minister's office is extremely discouraging on this front. Uh, and I can't tell how much of that is to placate uh, lobby groups, but. I think it's really important that people understand, too, that of the 26 amendments that we made, 18 of them were made by members of the independent senators group, living up to our name, to be independent. And we are not opponents of the government. We are not champions of the government. We are independent senators. And I think a lot of people in Ottawa are still having a hard time with that concept. I think that's probably right. One of those people might be the heritage minister. And and I don't know if you watched the video uh, of him at the primetime conference when he was asked specifically about amendments and seemed to suggest that, well, if the amendment amendments that didn't do anything, he would be open to accepting, but anything that did something um, was not on. And when there was even the question raised about, you know, what does that mean from a democratic perspective? He said, ah, democracy sort of laughed it off, but doesn't strike me as a as a laughing matter. You know what does what will the what message do you think this will send to the Senate, having conducted the kind of extensive, sober second thought that you know the Senate is supposed to be there for, and frankly, doing I think anybody objectively would say a far more intensive, rigorous job than the House of Commons itself did with this legislation, only to have the government that created it in this way said this is what they were looking for reject out of hand anything that actually changes anything. Well, I'm going to try to be optimistic. I'm speaking to you on Friday afternoon. It's the 10th, I think. I've been flying a lot, so I've sort of lost track of the days. It's Friday the 10th, right? Um, So by the time people are listening to this, I suppose they will know what will happen, and maybe I don't. So, you know, Schrodinger cat-like, I'm going to hope that maybe the government, after puffing and puffing, will accept some substantive amendments. Now, I understand a bit about what the minister was saying, because some of the amendments we made were, I don't want to say decorative, but they were statements of principle. So we added language to the bill, uh, you know, statements in support of uh, uh, journalistic freedom and, you know, and, and free expression, statements in support of audience, uh, audience preference, statements in support of Indigenous and Black uh, uh broadcasters and and producers. But we also made, in addition to the 4.2.2 amendment that we've talked so much about, we made other substantive amendments. Senatrice Mille de Duchesne uh, brought forward a really important amendment that was suggested by the privacy commissioner to safeguard the privacy of Canadians, not not just Canadians who are audience members, but Canadians who also use social media to post things. And you know, the, her language came directly from the privacy commissioner. The government was not happy about it, but I think that's a really important amendment. And there's, then there's another amendment, which is not at all sexy, but I know you have blogged about this. Um, this is now we're, now we're so in the weeds that, you know, we're going to need an army of soldiers with weed whackers to get us out. Um, section seven, sub seven of the act, which was very difficult to interpret because it says, you know, for greater certainty, and then it provides you know, it's sort of like a like a decision tree. This affects se- this section, this section, this section, this section, and this section. And we heard from some you know serious academic experts and uh, and legal experts who told us that that innocuous looking section actually gave 
to the government, to governor and council, a huge capacity to sort of interfere and micromanage CRTC decisions, and that it interfered with the traditional independence and arm's length nature of the CRTC. The government said, no, no, it doesn't do that. It's really just decorative. They didn't say decorative, but they said, oh, you know, that's, that's a sort of a de minimis section. And then we heard from other witnesses who said, no, no, that section undermines the independence of the CRTC. And we heard that from, you know, not just, uh, not just academics and lobbyists, but also from the then commissioner of the CRTC. And so we as a committee voted to take section seven, sub seven out of the bill completely. Now, this did not get a lot of sexy press because you've probably already fallen asleep while I've explained this. But it's a really important amendment too. And so I will be really curious to see what the government does. And then I will be really curious to see what we in the Senate do. Okay. Why don't don't we go there for just a sec? You know, and it's purely speculative, obviously, depending, I would imagine, a bit on what the government actually does do. But how do you see this potentially playing out at the Senate? You know, if if the government were to reject many of the more substantive amendments that did receive approval from the full Senate coming out of um, coming out of committee, do you think there is there a possibility that the Senate will say, hold on a second, um, this was good work and we're not happy with, uh, with that wholesale rejection or are they simply going to say it's time to move on? That's a really good question to which I don't know the answer. I mean, we have within our purview as senators the right and indeed the obligation to defeat legislation that is prima facie in defiance of the constitution. So a bill, you know, when I speak to, I spoke to grade nine students this week and I said, you know, if the government made a bill to take away the right of women to vote, the Senate would not just be within its rights, but within its responsibilities to say, no, that's an unconstitutional bill. If they don't accept our amendment to 4.2.2, is the bill unconstitutional? Well, you know, you're a law professor. A bunch of lawyers could argue philosophically that that's a potential violation of people's free speech rights, maybe, kind of, sort of. Um, It's not not a black and white question where it's easy to say the Senate must vote against the bill if it doesn't have that section amended. You know, it's not our role because we are appointed and not elected and we show deference to the elected and accountable House of Commons. It's not our job as an appointed body to run roughshod over the will of the House. That said, I think the government would be making a terrible mistake if they don't accept this amendment. I think the bill will blow up in their face. I think we have given them a face-saving way out and they'd be... uh, they would be naive not to take the exit ramp we have offered them. How will I vote? Well, I'll, I'll wait and see what we get back. Um, th- the truth is, I don't think enough senators will vote against this to provoke a constitutional crisis. But, you know, we do have the right. You know, my colleague, Senator Harder, who was the first independent government representative, used to say, we ping, but we don't pong. We, we do have the right to pong. You know, I think we can pong once without creating a constitutional crisis, but it's really difficult. I mean, you see, at the same time all this is happening, um, the government is coming forward with Bill C-39, which deals with another time when the Senate pushed back. And that's when the government brought us the made legislation 
that specifically said that if your primary, you know, your, your one underlying reason for wanting medical aid and dying was psychiatric or psychogenic, that you would be not allowed to have made. And I argued very passionately at the time that that was fundamentally unconstitutional. Uh, enough senators agreed. And we told the House that we couldn't accept the bill unless they did something about that. And so the government came back and said, all right, we'll put on a one-year sunset, you know, one-year sunset clause, which is which is our amendment that uh, that my colleague Stan Kutcher championed. And now the government is coming to us and saying, we can't make the deadline for the one-year sunset clause. So they're bringing another bill to buy them more time. To me, that's a much more fundamental case of where the Senate should push back and say no, you know, uh, or at least say, all right, you get one more year and then that's it. And then you have to actually do the thing. Uh, So each one of these questions is a matter of careful calibration. And I think it is important that the Senate does respect its traditional role. We are not elected. We are appointed. It is not our job just to oppose government legislation because we don't like it or because we think it's ill-advised. On the other hand, since we have an independent Senate and since it's been doing important, thoughtful work, I think it behooves the government to listen to us. Okay. I, I, well, I think you've made a, a, a great case for why, why you, frankly, I, I love the, that notion that you've provided the government with a face-saving off-ramp on an issue that has clearly, for the la- literally for the last year, uh, struck a chord with an awful lot of people, raised an enormous amount of controversy. Government, I think, you know, opened C-11 by saying that they had found a face-saving solution to what had taken place with C-10. They didn't find it. But I think that perhaps you and Senator Neville Deshane have, and um, it seems to me that it's a, an ideal opportunity for them to actually go ahead and take what you've provided to them um, and move on with the legislation at the CRTC and the like and the policy direction and all the other sorts of things that are scheduled to come next. Yeah, You know, there are also amendments in this bill that I didn't support um, and that I hope the government will reject. <laughs> and, that, um, and then there's one I did support sort of for sentimental reasons that I'm pretty sure the government will reject and is well within its rights to do so. That's the uh, that's the amendment from Senator Percy Down, which bans the CBC from using sponsored content. Uh, you know, uh, I called it native advertising and some senators thought I was saying something about indigenous peoples. I was like, no, 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 no. that's not what it means. Um, it's, you know, it's advertorial content that looks like news, but is really a cleverly disguised advertising. Um and when Senator Down put that amendment on the table, as somebody who worked as a journalist for 30 years, including five or six years with the CBC, I couldn't, I couldn't vote no. And I think that's why Senator Senators Wallen and Mathilde Duchenne voted for it as well. But I think we all know it was probably out of scope and probably should not be in the bill. Um, but it hope, at least it gave us a moment to raise the issue of sponsored content and why it's anathema to public trust in a free press. It did. And uh, this past week, we saw the CBC president uh, sort of pick up both on that amendment and a number of other issues that have put it squarely, I think, in the in the policy realm about questions about the CBC. I mean, I hate sponsored content. I mean, I don't think private companies should use it either, but that battle is long lost and it's not my job to tell private media entities how how to advertise. But I think mm-hmm. sponsored content has done a terrible thing to the information ecosystem in this country and has diluted public trust in the media at a time when that was a very bad thing to happen. 
Okay, one last question for you, especially since you start talked about private media and advertising and the like, and that's Bill C eighteen. C eighteen. People said to me, "Oh, you must be so happy. C eleven is over." And it's sort of, it's you know, it's like one of those serial, you know, TV shows where you defeat, you know, you, you've dealt with the big bad, and then the next big bad comes, and it's even bigger and badder. This is so I, sort of how I feel that we sort of put C eleven to bed, and now here comes C eighteen. I, I think that's true. And actually, as 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 we record this, you've just given a uh, a terrific talk that I'll put in the show notes, um, uh, criticizing C18 with some really good questions and answers as, as part of that. Um, though there's time enough, I think, to talk more about C18. Perhaps you can come, come on in the future and, and really drill down into that bill. But I'm curious about your thoughts about how this is likely to play out at the Senate. Are we going to see a a similarly rigorous review, do you think, of C-18, or is this going to be one of the more typical ones where witnesses appear to be sure, but um, it moves on a faster track than we've just seen with C-11? It will move on a faster track for one simple reason, which is that it's a far less complex bill. I mean, C-11 was this whole complicated regulatory framework, a bill that amended a whole bunch of different pieces of legislation. There were so many moving parts uh, and it it took people a long time to even just wrap their heads around all of the all of the implications of the bill. C eighteen is a much more straightforward piece of legislation, so it won't need that kind of deep dive. It won't have nearly as many rival stake you know not rival stakeholders. But the trouble with C eleven is that we you know you had stakeholders over here who were not even interested in the same topics as the stakeholders over there. C eighteen will be a more concentrated study. Uh, for me. Personally, it is a much more problematic piece of legislation, and that is saying something. So uh, the other thing that I think is interesting about C-18 is that, as, as I said, Pierre Polyev was vehemently opposed to C-11. I think the conservatives have been all more muted on C-18, and I suspect there may not be unanimity. I mean, I'm not a conservative, so I can't, I can't speak for them. But uh, in my perception is that there may be less unanimity of purpose amongst the conservatives about their their perspective on C-18. Uh, so I don't think we're going to get as, there won't be as much politics being played with it, I don't think. And it doesn't seem to have captured the public imagination in the way that C-11 did for good or for ill. Uh, you know, maybe we're still waiting for the, the disinformation campaign about C-18 to come along. Quite frankly, I think C-18 on its face is problematic enough without making up, uh, you know, making up lies about it. I think we should just talk about what's wrong in the bill. And there's quite a lot. And I didn't make it up. It's right there. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's true. I do think that if there is a parallel with C-11, it's that the House review of C-11 fell short and the House review of C-18 fell short. So uh, I'm glad to hear that there's interest. And and I think that at oh, a minimum, there's... the Senate, Senate can, and again, do the job that, frankly, the House should have done, which is to do a more extensive review and ensure that all the various experts and stakeholders have the chance to provide some of their perspectives. You know, the challenge with C-18 is that, frankly, there's not as much room for amendment. With C-11, because it was such a sprawling you know, sprawling octopus of a bill, you could amend a tentacle here and a tentacle there. C-18 is not as amenable to amendment or to substantive amendment. You're really just sort of rearranging the furniture. So it's going to be, it's going to be a very, very different process. 
Okay. I think that I think that's true. Although I, I think there are definitely some things that can be done at a minimum to improve. We, we will talk. I'm, you and I will have a really, really gripping conversation about the burn convention and it will do wonders. I mean, I'm sure thousands of people are going to line up to download yes. a podcast where we talk about the burn convention and copyright. Uh, it'll be so sexy. It'll be so hot. Uh, it's definitely worlds colliding when it's copyright <laughs> plus uh, plus the internet plus media for sure. Well, Senator Simons, I'm glad, I, you know, I'm, I know that many people are really grateful for the work that you put in in C11 and uh, the work that's to come on C18. And personally, thank you for taking the time to, to share some of your perspectives here on the podcast. Well, it's, and thank you for all the work you have done to raise public interest and awareness about these issues and to, to, to try, I'm not sure I've been a very good example. I think, as I say, I've spent far too much time in the weeds today for someone who used to be a journalist and used to be able to tell stories neatly um i've i've taken us i've taken us into the into the weeds in a serious way but i think that um i think it's really important to talk about what is in these bills as opposed to getting dragged into a discussion about lies about the bills i don't love c11 even as amended but i voted for it as amended because i think it is a substantively better bill than it was. It is not something that Joseph Goebbels would have come up with. It is not something Stalinist. And as somebody whose family members suffered under Hitler and Stalin, I grow increasingly weary of people, you know, defiling the name of the Holocaust and taking the names of the victims of the gulags in vain to prop up some ridiculous straw man argument. It would be very, very nice if we could actually just talk about the legislation on the page and its strengths and weaknesses without conflating everything uh, with ultimate horror. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.